Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. This week on the podcast, I have my friend Rocky on, and we talk about issues with the medical system, specifically how medical insurance and government involvement in the medical system, whether via medical insurance or just via general regulations, has actually hampered the medical system in the United States. So it's a great discussion. I hope you all really like it and that you also stay tuned for the episode that will drop a week from when this one does that will take what we discussed in this first episode and apply it more practically to our day-to-day lives. So I hope you all like it. Hey everyone, I am here with Rocky Ramsey. Uh, We are hopefully going to do a really good job with this recording because we were just in the last five or 10 minutes finishing up and I had like a five second long power outage. I don't even know if it lasted that long. My computer started turning back on almost the moment it turned off and it was enough to lose the recording, which was very frustrating, but God is sovereign. So I immediately had to remind myself of his sovereignty so that way I wouldn't get frustrated with it. So this is a moment of self-counsel. But anyways, I am here with my friend Rocky Ramsey. He does the For the King podcast. So I'll let him introduce himself. Hey, Jeremy. Yeah, uh, that's good. The (laughs) self-control to trust in God's sovereignty there. Um, Yeah, so I am, you know, my name is Rocky. Hey, everybody. And I do the For the King podcast. You can, you know, just look it up and you can find it on all platforms. And I have a website, forthekingpodcast.com. And I don't know, the, the goal of the, the podcast was, you know, in the midst of COVID, at the beginning of COVID, you know, there was more time. It got me thinking of what I ought to be doing as a man. And I thought it's good to, uh, you know, share the good news of the gospel and the scope of the gospel to people through the internet. The internet's a great tool. So I just wanted to be a part of it and put my voice out there as a Christian. And I'd love one day to see when, if you scroll through Apple podcast or Spotify and you're looking for a podcast to listen to something new, you can't help but scroll through thousands of godly, uh, God glorifying podcasts before you can find your one pagan thing that you were trying to find in the first place. I'd love to see that one day. So I'm just trying to add to that and glorify God and my Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of that. So that's kind of what I'm doing, what I'm up to. Thanks so much, Jeremy, for letting me come on. It's good to have you. And today we're talking about the medical system and how this relates to theonomy and economics, more specifically medical insurance and government involvement in the medical system. A month or two ago on an episode, I forget which one, um, I said something about wanting to do an episode about how the medical system, medical insurance, government involvement in it, has really just harmed the medical system itself, made prices go up, made technological and medical advancement not continue as quickly as it should have. And I said, if any listeners want to come on an episode and talk with me about this, that know more about the topic than I do, then hit me up. And 
the listener that hit me up was actually my friend Rocky uh, just probably a few weeks before then I had recorded an episode with him on his podcast and now he is here recording an episode with me on mine actually two episodes we're planning on doing a part two that'll release next week getting more specific into your practical day-to-day life with what we're talking about in this part one episode and so uh, what Rocky knows about this his wife's a nurse. He spoke with her about a lot of the things that we'll be talking about in this episode to make sure he's giving y'all good information. And uh, (laughs) I will let you do your take two of your introduction to this episode. Take two. I should be able to articulate this perfectly now uh, with no hiccups. So what what I kind of wanted to start off the conversation when we're thinking about healthcare and the government involvement in healthcare and think about it from a theonomic perspective, God's law as our presupposition. Um, and like, like you love to say, Jeremy, which I think is a correct and good thought. Theonomy is just presuppositional uh, methodology applied to uh, politics. So, you know, healthcare has become a politicized issue because the government thinks they have a right to uh, provide healthcare. So that's kind of where I wanted to start with maybe some presuppositions about this whole discussion, uh, which can kind of, you know, give us a baseline of what we're thinking about here uh, when we talk about government involvement in healthcare. So the first thing I wanted to articulate to all of y'all listening um, was this idea of positive and negative rights. So um, usually what you'll hear on the left, uh, you know, because they're all about socializing healthcare. I mean, they're, they're socialists and a majority of them, they, they think they ought to socialize every program. The government should have their hand in it. Um, and they, they, they'll use this talking point, healthcare is a right. And my background's in environmental engineering. So in a roundabout way, I'm involved with public health through cleaning up water and things like that. And the UN, the United Nations, declared water access a right as well. So um, if we're talking about rights, um, you know, the, the, the two different categories of rights that I'm going to portray to you guys listening is positive and negative rights. Yeah, real so, quick, before you get further than that, I just want to say, and what you're saying there with access to water as a right, um, where I grew up near Detroit, some of y'all remember with Caleb last month on those episodes that he was on talking about where we're from in Michigan, they wanted to say that uh, people in Detroit or in the area that were really poor and weren't able to pay their water bill and that their water was getting turned off because of it, that this was somehow violating their human right to water that when they didn't pay their water bill, their water got shut off. And therefore you should just have your water for free and not have a water bill anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very common talking point. And honestly, you know, a way to not take responsibility of your situation, even though you've been dealt a bad hand by God and his sovereignty, just like we, <laughs> we had to record the re-record this, right. We, we didn't have a, uh, you know, Jeremy, me and you didn't have a right to complete that podcast we were just filming. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of we, what we're talking about here. We didn't have a right before God to take each breath that we took as we were recording it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Amen, brother. So when we think about rights like that, the founding fathers, when, the, when they're, you know, putting together the Constitution, laying out the rights, uh, you know, the um, anti-federalists thought the Bill of Rights was you know, kind of a bad idea because the the point of negative rights is that God gives them to you by virtue of you being made in his image. You don't have to earn them. You don't have to work yourself up to them and nobody gives them to you. They're inalienable. They're there by God. 
God has given them to humanity. That's what the Bill of Rights is laying out. And that's what a negative right is. It's already there. There's nothing you can do to absolve any human of their negative rights. Now, when we're thinking about healthcare being a right or water access, like Jeremy's talking about in Michigan, that talking point of those being a right, those aren't negative rights because God's not giving us the breath we breathe. God doesn't give us water all the time. He lets people, he lets some people die of an ability to access clean water. He lets people some die because they're not able to have healthcare, right? You get a cut, a fatal wound. God doesn't give you a right to be healed in that moment. He lets you die. That's, that's how God usually works uh, through secondary causes. So positive rights are basically getting at, uh, Jeremy, you pointed out last time that um, if healthcare is a right and, it, and, and it's a positive right because God's not giving it to us, then that means that the right is given by the state. The government must ensure or provide the pathway for humanity to get that right. Somebody else has to bear the burden. And that comes through the means of taxation. That's how the government provides for themselves, either through loans from another country, inflating the currency, or through taxation. Well, usually, how do we provide for Medicare and Medicaid? That's through taxation. That's how the government provides for that. So yeah, there's already a, a, a quick detour to... Uh, just explain the positive and negative rights a little bit more. Um, one, a great book on positive rights is The Rights Fight by Jay Lucas. My friend Andrew Rappaport recommended that to me. I read like half of it and haven't touched it in a while, so I need to finish it. And if Rappaport listens to this episode, he's going to probably like text me or call me and tell me I'm dumb and need to finish it ASAP because I think he read it in like one sitting the first time he picked up the book. He loved it so much. He said it's the best book on precept he ever read. But that book is talking about rights given by God versus positive rights, which positive rights are rights the government says that you have that don't come from scripture or from God's created order. And that's what Rocky's talking about right now. Uh, positive rights would be whenever the government basically says, we are giving you this right that God doesn't give you by virtue of his word or creation. And so they're trying to say that one such positive right is medical care. And this isn't to be confused, this whole positive negative right conversation isn't to be confused with positive and negative law, though they are similar. And sometimes a conversation about one leads to a conversation about the other. Positive versus negative law is a law that says you must do this positive versus you must not do this negative. And now you think the you can't do this negative law sounds like the more restrictive one, but it's actually the more freeing one. Because when I say you can't do these three things. That means you can do anything else besides those three things. There's only three things you can't do. When I say you must do this, I'm saying you have to do that and you can't do anything else but do that one thing. So negative law is actually much more freeing than positive law. And as Rush Dooney has pointed out, when you look at the Ten Commandments or more broadly, the Old Testament law as a whole, there's a lot more negative law than there is positive law because God does give us many freedoms in his law. But I just want to make sure people weren't getting confused with negative law versus positive law and then negative rights versus positive rights. Exactly. No, that, that's a great distinction. So um, we build laws around rights, like you're saying, they're connected. So we're going to talk about some of the legislation or the ways that the government's kind of overstepped their boundaries when claiming that healthcare is a right. And then they make legislation, regulation, and things like that, that hinder economic growth in the free market for um, healthcare. So we're, we're going to get into that. But I wanted, before we did that, Jeremy, and it, um, 
I wanted to do a few more presuppositions in the state's medical position that is going to harm, uh, you know, free market economic growth and, co and healthy competition that should help the consumer. And these presuppositions are, um, you know, scientific theories that are lending themselves to a certain way of treating disease that creates economic burdens on the consumer rather than, you know, a free market kind of, uh, you know, uh, paradise. I don't know. <laughs> that's, the, that's the only word I come up with. So the first one would be germ theory versus terrain or cellular theory. So germ theory would be Louis Pasteur's theory. So we get a lot of our you know, our, our presuppositional framework for the way that we look at disease from Louis Pasteur. And he is the one that coined the germ theory. Uh, the alternative to that would be uh, the terrain theory, like I'm saying. Um, the difference between the two is that germs are what cause disease. Terrain theory says weak bodies, weak uh, white blood cells are the ones that cause disease. Yeah. And some Christians who have talked about more terrain theory type ideas are people like my friends, uh, Anthony Silvestro, uh, Dr. Anthony Silvestro, he is a dentist, which basically means he's a typical medical doctor, but then has to know extra stuff about the mouth. So he's really smart. And then also my friend, Jason Garwood, and both of them have uh, done a lot of research into that and talked about these things. And then, uh, like I mentioned in our first recording that I believe now is lost, uh, I, at one point when I was a teenager, wanted to be a pharmacist. I was going to study at Cedarville University in Ohio for it. And now I'm kind of glad I haven't because of things like this whole terrain theory versus germ theory here. Cause you know, people talk about big pharma and a lot of times with big pharma, it seems like, you know, we know how we could probably help you take this medicine just for a time and work yourself towards with a change of diet and or lifestyle, not needing it anymore, but some people, especially more when you get into the, like the big pharma side of medicine, they don't want you to do that because where's the uh -huh. money in it for them? They want you to be on the medicine as long as possible because they make money the more prescriptions you're on. So had I been a pharmacist and had I been a God-honoring pharmacist that wanted to try to give someone a medicine only for a time and try to work their lifestyle change, work lifestyle changes into their habits that would make them as soon as it is healthy to do so no longer be taking the medicine that would put me out of the mainstream of a lot of the pharmaceutical industry and having to deal with all of those issues is one thing that makes me glad I'm not a pharmacist. And if any listeners are, and if you're one of those people that like you want to do what's right and not make people dependent on medicine their entire lives that they ideally would only need for a little bit, then I, I salute you. Like what you're doing is good work going against what a lot of the pharmaceutical industry is trying to do. Yeah. And that kind of leads into the next point you're wanting to make after that, because they're the way they see as man just needs all this medicine and all of that is they're kind of seeing them as just the, uh, the ghost in the shell. Man is just the man is a machine, not man as a creation by God intricately made, but just a byproduct of evolution, nothing more than just fizzing chemicals, which gets at your next presupposition you want to say. Exactly. Nope. Yeah. And you've described it well. So that evolutionary presupposition, you, you've already portrayed it well, but I guess just to add a little bit to that, um, they're going to view the body as capable, you know, there's total depravity and, and sin has infiltrated the creation both uh, physically and, um, you know, spiritually, I, I, I maintain that in the position, but um, 
the evolutionary model is fundamentally different because you're not saying that the body ought to work well. It's, it's made to be chaotic. It doesn't have, there's no harmony to it and there's no telos to it. Um, while still as a Christian, you can maintain that through total depravity, there's still a curse on the flesh where people can get sick, but that's not the way it ought to be. And the evolutionary theory, there's, there's no ought the, 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 you can't even get an ought. We, who, maybe we're supposed to be sick all the time, you know, who knows by what standard is health ideal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cause you know, through gene mutation, I mean that usually whatever. Yeah. We're not going to go into all that. So, um, and what's pushing. So I guess to harmonize all those in terms of the medical field, these are going to be the big studies that are going to push forward a lot of the way that we do, uh, our medical treatment here in America. Um, and the leading cause of death is heart disease. So these are, these are kind of going to deal with heart disease and provide the rhetoric and the presupposition uh, through the way that we uh, deal with heart disease. And it's not economically friendly. That's, that's kind of my point here. So the Ansel Key seven uh, country study and the Framingham studies are something you're going to want to look into. If you want to understand the intricacies of why we use things like statins, the kind of drugs we use, any diuretic pill. Uh, my wife was telling me one about warfarin that she uses a lot. Um, not all those are for heart disease, but those, those drugs are approved by the FDA. And if you have a certain kind of a, you know, a doctor comes in and sees a patient and they have certain symptoms, they will, they're by law um, forced by regulation, forced to prescribe a certain drug that's been approved by the FDA to deal with said symptoms that could be causing XYZ disease. And especially with heart disease, that's coming from that Ansel Key study and the Framingham studies. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about the background with that in World War II, because I never heard that before. Oh, yeah. So, one on this. <laughs> yeah. Ansel, I forgot to say that. Thank you. So Ansel Keys um, is a really famous physician. I think he was a nutritionist as well. But what he's really famous for is providing the rations and the, 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 the meals that each um, soldier would eat during World War II. So he was known, like people would say, he, he fed the Ansel Keys, he fed the troops. Um, he's the one that fed, you know, that made sure that they had a well-balanced diet while overseas that could be done in, in, in a very cheap way, an efficient way for uh, the allied powers. Does that mean he's partially responsible for MREs? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly when the MRE came around, but I know, I know he was instrumental in maybe what was going into the MREs during that time period. Okay. My dad, who's himself a veteran, he jokes around that MRE stands for, as most of y'all probably know, it actually stands for meal ready to eat, but he joked around that it stands for meal rejected by Ethiopia because when <laughs> all that stuff was going around and going on in Ethiopia several decades ago, we sent them a bunch of MREs and they sent them back. Okay. That's funny. <laughs> That's good. Well, you, yeah, you'd have to know that if you were in the military. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of all the presuppositions I wanted to start off with. So we can start talking to some more economic uh, economics, how that's involved with the healthcare system. Yeah, we should probably talk about economics on an economics podcast. <laughs> Sounds about right. But yeah. Um, so as you all know, medical costs are very expensive, not even just medical costs, but medical insurance is very expensive. I pulled up a website here. Um, I just did a simple DuckDuckGo search. So I don't know if this is exactly a scholarly source. Um, it's just called moneygeek.com, but it has the average health insurance premiums by state for 40-year-olds. And so it's got the monthly cost and the annual cost by state. 
the state I grew up in, Michigan, it's got the annual cost at $4,300. So people, the average 40-year-old in Michigan pays $4,300 a year just for medical insurance, let alone prescriptions or a visit to the ER. And Michigan's actually one of the cheaper ones on here. A lot of them are in like the five or 6,000 range. Uh, has New Jersey 7,000 on the dot. It has uh, New York at 8,500. Wow. So Michigan's 4,300 actually puts it on the lower end of the spectrum of a lot of these. And this is just for medical insurance. Like I said, this doesn't even count if you actually have to use your medical insurance for some kind of medical emergency or anything like that. And that's really just astronomical. I was trying to do some research before we got on about what say around like 1920, the average person paid for medical care because 1920 was before you really saw a lot of the popular mainstream medical insurance we have today. Cause I want to just do a adjusted for inflation, how much someone paid for medical attention per year in 1920 compared to what we pay for just medical insurance alone today. And I was going to show how it's a lot cheaper. I couldn't find the exact numbers to show you how much cheaper it is by, I know even adjusted for inflation, people a hundred years ago spent less on medical care than we spend just on medical insurance today. And so yeah. medical insurance and the government involvement in it is really jacking up the prices of our medical care. And a lot of that has to do with the competition or more specifically the lack thereof of competition. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You have to have the, the regulation just stifles all of that uh, healthy competition we want to see in a market like healthcare. So one thing I was looking at, I got a CNBC article pulled up from 2019 here. Uh, new study from academic researchers found that 66.5% of all bankruptcies were tied to medical issues. Now, and it says either because of high costs for care or time out of work. This could, this could be, okay, Americans already have bad um, personal financial, financial habits, and this is just the straw that broke the camel's backs. We don't know in each one of these situations, but regardless I know for me, my, my father just passed away um, from a brain tumor this past summer. So he had cancer and we spent so much money, hundreds of thousands of dollars on his, his medical treatment. We liquidated all of my mom and his, his IRAs and any 401k they had any, uh, I think they sold maybe some insurance plans and things like that to try to keep, keep him here on earth. But it was the Lord's will and his sovereignty to take him away. Um, we were not able to, you know, get him back to health. But I, I can attest from personal experience, hundreds of thousands of dollars for caring for someone's health. And yeah, if my mom wasn't careful, if my dad would have survived a little longer, heck yeah, she would have went bankrupt. 66.5% of all bankruptcies tied to medical issues. I, yeah, that, that's, not, that's not a surprise to me. Um, and it's precisely because there is no competition um, between, there's no healthy competition because of the way the government incentivizes these big, huge oligarchy like medical chains, these hospitals and the insurance companies connect and have such a good symbiotic relationship with these um, healthcare facilities that, oh my goodness, the copays can be more than, you know, uh, more than going somewhere else to uh, a, a natural, a more natural, holistic uh, um, practice. Yeah. And yeah, when Rocky says that, he's, also not kidding. Uh, there's a guy, we both heard a podcast where he was a guest on and we both listened to multiple podcasts. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, so 
maybe someone can PM me. Maybe I'll just post in the Facebook group after we record this to get his name. So I really wish I could remember if I can get his name, maybe I'll reach out to him and have him come on a future episode, but he does a no insurance medical practice. He's a Christian doctor in Oklahoma and you just pay up front. Now I'm sure he can do like financing if you don't have the cash up front to pay, but he doesn't take insurance. He just basically works on a cash basis with the medical stuff he does. And he'll do a surgery for like five grand that at a hospital with your medical insurance probably costs 50 or a hundred grand. And when you get that expensive surgery with your medical insurance at the hospital, your copay is probably what he's charging for the entire surgery. Exactly. And then throw on something like Samaritan Ministries. And now the majority of that 5k cash payment is covered with Samaritan Ministries as a health sharing, not a health insurance platform. And you're good. I would like to see if there's a guy like that near us, Rocky. I know. I know. Can you imagine if, um, imagine that dude, what if he had healthy competition in his prices? Cause that's what he feels like he can do to make a good profit and not rip people off. I think he was doing knee replacement surgeries for like, like a meniscus thing, like five or 6,000 bucks. I was just looking online. Um, that's usually like a 15 to $20,000 surgery. And he's doing it for 6,000 bucks as an independent surgeon with his own practice. Imagine if that dude had healthy competition, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, where and, would his prices be? And now you are wondering, uh, how can he charge so little when everyone else is charging so much? So one that relates to how we've talked about the issue with competition and medical insurance, which we'll get back to in a minute. I know we've more just said it. We haven't explained it yet. We'll get back to that in a minute. But also part of that is the paperwork he doesn't have to do with medical insurance. Yep. Because if he did take medical insurance, he'd probably have to hire one or two more full-time people just to his small practice. Imagine how many people at a giant hospital just to deal with the paperwork for medical insurance. So just having to deal with the receiving of funds from medical insurance and filing and all of that, that increases your costs. And then also getting to the competition aspect I just mentioned. When there's this medical insurance like this, a lot of times there's not competition because your medical provider basically tells you like, hey, we've got a good relationship with these one or two hospital chains. You're only allowed to go to those. We'll only cover it if you go to like these specific one or two chains and each different issue of medical care, whether it's a hospital ER, whether it's like a dentist or, um, you know, optometrist, that's for the eyes, right? Whatever it is. I wear like six inch thick glasses. I should know this. (laughs) Um, but, um, you know, cause then the way they do that, where they only give you like one or two options for each is because they develop partnerships with these hospitals to say like, Hey, we'll refer our people to your hospital and maybe one other, maybe just yours alone. And in exchange for that, you'll give us really good rates and good discounts on when people come to you with our insurance. And that's how it kind of works, which I mean, maybe that's collusion. There, there's part of me that's okay with people forming business partnerships. But it's some of the other aspects of it I have issue with where now there's no longer a competition of the hospital and the person needing medical attention and the competition of all the people in the area needing medical attention. It's this hospital has like two or three customers, not thousands of customers, two or three from the two or three different insurance companies that people in the area use that come to them. And so now they don't have to deal with all these different people that could go to one of the other hospitals instead of them. It's because the people bought insurance through one of this hospitals, like three customers, they have to go there. So what incentive does a hospital have to work on developing their own medical 
research to try to have better research than the competition? Why do they have to try to have a lower price than the competition? The price basically doesn't matter at all. All they have to do is have a cheap enough price to keep a couple of big medical insurance companies coming to them instead of a different local hospital and they're good. So it really just drives down competition and drives up cost or yeah, drives down competition, drives down development and drives up cost because of things like that. Where now imagine the other scenario where say in your local area, there's three hospitals instead of your insurance tells you you're only allowed to use one or two of those three hospitals and the insurance companies are the customer, not you as the patient as the customer at the hospital. Imagine if there wasn't all of that. It's all based on cash, like that guy in Oklahoma. And uh, you can go to whichever hospital you want. Each hospital knows that anyone can come to whichever hospital they want to. And so they want to try to have an edge, you know, sure. They might have a little bit of an edge as to the people really close to them will want to come to them instead of driving further to go to the hospital, but they want more of a market edge than just they're the closest hospital to people in some parts of the city. They want to try to have better staff, uh, better reputation, lower prices, things like that, that drive up competition, drive up their research and do having you know, different surgeries that the other hospitals aren't able to do, or maybe their surgeries of that type have a better success rate or the same success rate, but are cheaper, different things like that competition we see in all these other industries that aren't so heavily regulated and don't have insurance like this. And so that's the thing there. Now, another example, this was from, I think, a water break on cross politic not too long ago. If auto insurance worked like medical insurance does, then auto insurance would also help cover the cost of when you put new tires in the car, except instead of paying 200 bucks a tire, maybe more, maybe less, depending on what type of tire you're getting and the quality of the tire and things like that. Well, now instead of 200 bucks a tire, it's 500 bucks a tire, but your auto insurance covers half the cost, but half of uh, 500 is still 250, which is more than the 200 you're paying right now. So your deductible for your tires with this auto insurance resembling medical insurance would be higher than you're paying out of cost right now when you go to Firestone and put new tires on your car. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and just hearing you talk about all that, they can they can get away with that. The relationship you're talking about between our hospitals now and insurance companies. My wife works at a hospital. She's a nurse. And, and she talks about um, just how much they can charge for something like tissues or a cup of water um, things like that. I mean, it's 10 bucks for a cup of water. It, it can run that high. You know, a lot of these costs are, oh, bed sheets were 50 bucks, you know, and then all that stuff adds up when you're at the hospital. And they can get away with marking up really simple items like that, because there's no, like you're saying, there's no competition in the model that we've set up. There's no competition. So they can charge 10 bucks for tissues if you got to blow your nose while you're in a hospital bed. It's yeah, because they know you're not their customer. The insurance provider is exactly. you have your five grand a year copay. And so as long as they beat your copay of five grand, they can charge whatever they want because you don't care. Your insurance is paying for it. So what do you care if a box of tissues costs one dollar or ten when your insurance is paying it because you already hit your deductible? Exactly. And if the if the hospitals have that mindset, then the insurance companies have to charge you a higher copay because right? You see how that's a vicious cycle. They're going to have to charge a higher copay. 
drive up the costs on your insurance. And it's, it, it's going to be all around cost everybody more money because it's wasteful and inefficient and it's not a good system. One other thing I wanted to bring up is kind of the history of insurance. During World War II, FDR froze the wages. There was a wage freeze. And what companies did to incentivize people to work, oh, why would I choose this job over this job? Because the wages are the exact same. They're frozen in the same place. There's no incentive to choose between the two of them. Well, how did, how did companies try to provide incentive? They started to provide insurance. So there's a history there on, on where this mindset's coming from, and it comes from the socialist lefty, uh, FDR. Uh, FDR, one of my least favorite presidents we've ever had. Yeah, he's, he is awful. Uh, the things he set up under the New Deal and a lot of the programs he did was just making the state beast turn into Leviathan, you know. Um, but, but yeah, so I just wanted to give more background there in terms of the economics of the, the, the relationship between insurance companies and and uh, healthcare, it's atrocious. It's awful. Bad for yeah. Um, and something I learned doing a little bit of quick searching around in preparation for this was not surprising at all, would kind of come to expect this, uh, that medical prices rose quite drastically around the time Medicaid and Medicare got popular. Yep. Oh my goodness. And does that surprise anyone if you're a longtime listener to this podcast and you agree with me on at least half the things I say, then you're probably not surprised by that at all. Yeah. I'm, I'm, so we've, we've already kind of articulated how the relationship worked between smaller insurance companies and, um, and, and big hospitals. Um, imagine if the United States with the amount, <laughs> you know, the, the largest insurance company in the world right now, <laughs> you know, imagine that relationship and how much prices are going to be driven up. It's, like you said, it's not good. Yeah. How I gave that example a bit ago of a local hospital, instead of having tens of thousands of families, each one with multiple individuals as competitive, you know, driving up competition because of all of that. And, you know, they could go to the other local hospital instead of theirs, all of that I explained a bit ago, but how the medical insurance system drives down that competition because now they're not competing with other hospitals for tens of thousands of families, they're competing with other hospitals for a handful of insurance providers. Well, now instead of, you know, imagine that lack of competition there when each hospital has like three insurance providers that have to send everyone to that hospital. Now, every single hospital has the same insurance provider of the U S government. If we went to a 100% socialized medical system. Yeah. And uh, you know, before someone says, Oh, but Canada's so great and they have socialized medicine. I remember at the beginning how I said I'm from Detroit. So I grew up near the Ambassador Bridge. That's probably one of the most well-known bridges in the country because it connects Detroit to Ontario. And I know from you know living in the area how many people from Canada drive over to the U.S. to buy medicine. If socialized medicine is so great and they should be getting that medicine for free, why are they driving across the country to purchase medicine in the U.S.? They should be able to get for free in their own country. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't work out in the long run. When you when you socialize a program, the quality goes down of the product, people don't want it. It's not helpful to the consumer. Yeah, that, that's that's happened time and time again. So it's just it's it's appalling that we're trying socialism again. Yeah. Uh, and all of that is aside from the regulations the government puts on the medical industry that lowers its uh 
it's advancement, the medical advancement we've seen in the last century, though there have been a lot of good medical advancements in the last century, it is not as much as we could have seen because of the government regulation. Just look at the technological industry and the advancements we've seen there in the last century, and it is much less regulated by the government. I mean, 70 years ago, the Enoch was the new big thing in the, the technological industry. And now you can go on the Google Play Store or App Store and download a free calculator app. Actually, you probably don't even need to download it because it comes on your phone when you buy a new phone. That's just as powerful as the Enoch was. You know, our new smartphones are more powerful, have more processing power than the entire Pentagon did like 30 or 40 years ago. That's the kind of advancements we've seen in the much less regulated technological industry. And though we have seen a lot of advancements in the last century in the medical industry, we have not seen as much as we could have if it wasn't for this decrease in competition, making people not as quick to try to find the new latest thing to drive customers to them. Because what's the point of driving more customers to you when you don't have as much competition to try to beat up the other guy? And then also just the regulations making it difficult, if not impossible, to do research. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, if you don't mind, is there a few things I can walk through real quick in terms of regulation? Yeah, go ahead. So I want to bring up the USDA in 1992 released the food pyramid. And this goes together with um, the, the food labels that the FDA puts out there are certain foods and food groups that are approved and, you know, uh, and then frowned upon by the populace. So that that's one where you're not incentivizing farmers to do things a certain way. So government is also involved in farming. This is something I'm a little more familiar with. Some an environmental engineer, they subsidize farmers to buy certain seed. So you have to buy certain seed because the insurance companies are wrapped up in lobbying and things for uh, companies like Monsanto and Bayer. And uh, you have to buy certain seed to grow certain foods that are approved of uh, approved foods that the populace need to eat in America. So the, I, the food pyramid, I would claim personally, is, is actually completely upside down. Everything that should be eaten, shouldn't be eaten. Everything that sh- uh, shouldn't be eaten, should be eaten. So that's one way that we're stifling innovation. We're stifling farmers growing good, healthy food for the populace. And, um, you know, and then this just goes into the kind of food that's fed to people in hospitals when they're getting, they're just the overall experience in your bang for your buck is going down. Um, the more we subsidize things to, from the government and, and, and uh, basically hitch ourselves to the government and, and the healthcare system. Yeah. And, just like you said, the highly subsidized big farming stuff, which what's so crazy to me is this like big industrial farming way that's being done in so, by, in so much of America is not even the most profitable way to do farming. Like I'm slowly getting more and more into, um, I'm, I'm learning more and more about no-till farming. I'm looking at doing that in my backyard. I have some friends that have already started on it a guy down the street from me has like a giant no-till farm in his backyard. And I've asked him some questions. He's given me a tour of his backyard and stuff. And no-till farming can be like super highly productive. Like if you own one acre of land, you could probably make your entire living off of just selling your produce if you do no-till the right way and you have good soil to start with and things like that. And so like this big industrial farming complex that's highly subsidized by the government isn't even necessary 
Because if they went to the granted more difficult, but in the long run, more profitable no-till method, they could probably make more money with zero government subsidies than they do right now with large government subsidies. Yeah. We're building a house of cards in our healthcare system. And, and what's intimately connected with the healthcare system is, is our agricultural system. So I completely agree. No-till is the way to go. I actually did my senior year, my undergrad, uh, I did a stu- I looked at a few studies in herbicide application. If you don't use any herbicides or pesticides, you have a higher and better yield. And not only do you get better yield, you also aren't killing the people that you're selling your food to because you're, you're actually giving, like, for instance, glyphosate is the number one, glyphosate is the number one pesticide that's applied on crops in the, around the world. I mean, hundreds of millions of tons of application on agriculture, on agriculture. It is a rank 2A carcinogen by the World Health Organization. If you want a great book on that, read uh, Stephanie Seneff's uh, Toxic Legacy. She's a PhD from MIT. She's really solid on this. But again, uh, agriculture is connected to health and we've created a system with all these government incentives that's driving up costs for the consumer. So there's lower yields in agriculture. It's driving up costs for consumers and people wanting to buy things. And we're having lots of shortages now, baby formula and all sorts of eggs and things uh, now with this little conflict in Ukraine. Um, But it's just a big issue and it's not good for our health. Um, Yeah. Did you know one of the popular insecticides, pesticides in some states is chemically not that far off from Agent Orange? Yeah, that's glyphosate. (laughs) Oh, that is. That's the one you're talking about. Okay. Glyphosate has like one bonding group off of being (laughs) Agent Orange. Very, very similar chemical. Mm -hmm. Uh, And from what I hear, that's like the most popular one in our state. Yes. Yeah. Look up. um, Yeah. I would highly toxic legacy Buy that book. She goes through all the science and yes, she does bring up how it's similar to agent orange and can demonstrate that it's very similar to that, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) that bomb. Um, But I just wanted to bring that. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. I was just going to say, yeah. Agent orange, that thing that the government pays veterans who are exposed to it while serving because of how bad it is for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, glyphosate is awful. And part of that that study I did in my undergrad, if you look at the Mississippi River drainage basin, you have the highest rates of colorectal cancer in the states where all of the herbicide, pesticide, fertilizers are uh, draining to, that Mississippi River drainage basin. Um, All the Midwest drains into that river and ends up in Louisiana. And down in Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, you have extremely high rates of cancer. And what's that doing? That's costing people money to care for themselves and uh, their lives also. Um, mm-hmm. So this this is an awful, awful problem that the government is, oh my goodness. It, it's just this vicious system where the government is enabling these farmers to do these things and they got to make their money, right? If they're not, it's so hard to get unhitched from the government once you socialize a program because your whole livelihood, if they don't get those subsidies, they, their farm can go under. So then they, they do an evil thing by putting pesticide and herbicide on their crops each year. Yeah. That guy, Dr. Silvestro, I mentioned a bit ago, he's done a lot of research into looking at cancer less like we traditionally have and more like a typical illness and treating cancer as such and has seen a lot of success with it. Maybe I can ask him to come on an episode and talk about it. I know he listens to the episode sometimes because he told me he's enjoyed some of it. So Maybe he'll hear this or maybe I'll hit him up and we can do an episode on that if the listeners think that'd be a great topic to discuss. I, I'll try to somehow relate it to economics. Yeah, well, it's um, 
I, I think you can, Jeremy, honestly. I, it just costs people so, like you said, it's so inefficient. <laughs> it's costing the taxpayer money because the subsidies are coming from the government and their income mm-hmm. is what? Taxes. It's absolutely destroying the economy. And it's, it's just not, the free market is not able to do what it needs to do. It's awful. Yeah. Well, I think we're already going a little bit over time and I think we covered about everything we want to say. So hopefully in God's providence, this take two is better than the take one. And uh, one last thing I wanted to mention was I already mentioned them once, but Samaritan Ministries, I think they're doing some good work. I've been slowly looking more and more into them because I'm thinking about going with Samaritan Ministries as a much cheaper option than traditional health insurance with, I think a lot of pros besides just being cheaper with like the paying cash instead of paying the insurance rates with the co-pays and all of that. So they're not a sponsor of the show uh, because of the Dorian principle that Rock and I both hold to. I'm not going to have paid sponsors. Although if I did have paid sponsors, Samaritan Ministries would probably be the first one I'd go to because before I became convinced of the Dorian principle, I was actually talking to someone from uh, Samaritan about as the show was growing at some point, possibly having them as a paid sponsor. So check out Samaritan Ministries if you're not familiar with them because they're related to what we've talked about in this episode. That's awesome. Can I name drop somebody I listen to a lot? on? Some- yeah, go ahead. Um, Dr. Ben Edwards has a podcast called You're the Cure. He's a physician down in um, the west side of Texas and he has his own, he, he, he has his own practice. Um, it's called Veritas Medical. And he does things the more natural way, holistic medicine, um, integrative medicine is what he calls it. And he does things so cheaply for the consumer. If I lived in Texas, that's where I'd go get my medical work done. If I, if I ever needed it, Um, he just doesn't, uh, uh, it doesn't cost people as much to go through Veritas medical. It's really cool what they're doing. So if you want to see maybe that Oklahoma guy we brought up, if we can just ever figure out his name and then Veritas Medical, um, Dr. Ben Edwards is awesome on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um, Dr. Rod's story on cross politic. I've listened to several episodes of his show and he's probably another person I'd recommend. That's good. Yeah. He does Mirror Medical, that podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Um, anything else you want to mention in this episode or should we go ahead and stop here and kick it over to part two, where we talk about how the church can get involved in all of this. Yeah, that sounds good, brother. I think I've exhausted what I wanted to say. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this episode. And I hope you stay tuned uh, next week and download the episode next week where we get more into how does this apply to your everyday life? Not just giving you information, but giving next week, trying to make that information apply to your everyday life and your life with your local church. So have a great day, y'all. So that was this week's episode of Theana Money. Hope y'all really liked it and that you learned some stuff. I learned a couple of things from Rocky in that episode. So it was great for me. I hope it was great for you all as well. And that was this week's episode of Theana Money. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends.
satisfies me. Your law is sweet, oh you.